it seems to me that one of the ways in which I understand the goal of any spiritual practice is that it opens the mind and the heart to see clearly what's true so that compassionate action ensues. That's really what I... I got an email this morning um, from a friend of mine. You know that today is Ash Wednesday, I, I think. Um, that says, offering the, the prayer and the blessing of Ash Wednesday. May the ash of this night become a blazing heart by the hundredth night hence, which is the night of Pentecost. Really in the season of paying attention to resurrection and to new life, which I think is the life of the heart and the life of compassion. Uh, may this day be um, what blossoms forth into a blazing heart of compassion. And I actually think that's the center of all religious tradition. Now, how will my heart transform into the heart of compassion? Out of awareness, of, out of wisdom out of wisdom for the difficulty of being in the world, in a body, in a life, in the best of circumstances, and the circumstances aren't the best because they are shaped by greed, hatred, and delusion. That there really are the causes of blindness. So I think about um, particularly this practice of mindfulness that is directed with the practice of loving-kindness to waking up the mind to the truth of suffering so that compassionate action happens naturally. I think about it cleansing the mirrors, the, the doors through which we see what's going on. And my sense is that when I am awake, there's no, nothing that I can look at that it will not reveal deeper and deeper meanings behind what's happening, and that the deepest meaning is that suffering is happening, how can I respond? That if my mind is not held hostage by the obsession of the day or the obsession of the week, then I will look out at the rain and I will think, there are 2,500 people without homes today, and uh, what can I do about that? I'll see the rain as well, and I'll think, well, good, there isn't going to be a water shortage this year. Um, Also, I don't know what this is going to do for the fruit growers, because it's a very big storm in just the time that the fruit trees are in blossom. It's a very strong blow out there, 50, 60 miles an hour today. So if I look, really, I have to hope that all the blossoms don't blow off the fruit trees and really do something to the peach crop for this year. Um, there's something to be seen past everything. And you think, oh, it's it's not to worry about the peach farmers necessarily, but to sense that everything is so fragile in this world that the well-being of the peach farmers depends on how many blossoms stay on the tree today. The well-being of all the wayfarers who are out today depends on not getting into traffic accidents well-being of all the people in the hills. It's not to fret, because tomorrow when it's a different kind of a weather or a different kind of a day, maybe the weather is perfect tomorrow. It's perfect here, but it's not somewhere else. But the world is imperfect. And how to look with eyes 
that are able to see with a certain amount of equanimity that the situation of human beings is very fragile and moment to moment subject to change. How is what I do in this moment going to make a difference in it? I remember Gandhi presumably said something like, um, anytime I'm about to do anything, I think to myself, how is what I'm about to do going to affect the poorest person in the world? And that governs what I do. Anyway, that's what I think is about spiritual practice. I think it's not about um, entering into a sublime state, although... Sublime states are lovely, you know, all those folks up there meditating away. And often in sublime states, I love that. I love it when they're able to do that. I love it when I'm able to do that. I'm very clear about myself that the sublime state is not an end in itself. Not, you know, it's not so that I can make myself, first of all, it doesn't work if I make myself the sublimest state in the world. I get one phone call that says, hello, Ma, are you home? Uh, the sublime state is gone. You know that uh, <laughs> uh, my sublime states all hang on the well-being of at least twenty other immediate people in my family, and probably two hundred of my you know circle of friends. Or, but it hangs a lot more on you know on what's going on in the world. It's a very major spiritual practice to read the newspaper in the morning. But I think that the sublime states, um, or the states in which I know, okay, this is not any of any of this. Anything that happens is not the fault of any particular person or even of these times. This is the karma of the moment that is coming to fruition over eons. I can't do anything about what is now emerging as the karma of this moment. What I do now is part of the karma of the whole rest of the world. And what it does is it changes my heart. I'm convinced that the beginning, um, that the beginning of that uh, metta chant, may I be free of enmity and danger, is the essence of spiritual practice. The enmity that I want to be free of is my own enmity, not of other people's enmity, which is what I thought in the beginning. May I be free, may I be free of having enemies who would be dangerous. I'm sure that the biggest enemy for me is my own enmity. That's the biggest danger for me because it puts me out of touch with my own good heart in which I feel most at home. So really what I thought I would talk about today is the, are ways in which the Buddha uh, taught about conditioning um, the availability of that heart of goodness. Here we are entering into this cycle of the um, liturgical year, both in Christianity and in Judaism, because we we are uh, in the middle now. We are today on day three of the month of Adar, which is the month before the month in which the Passover is celebrated. We have one full moon. Um, coming up before the full moon, which is Passover, uh, which comes out quite close to Easter this year. And uh, the central story of, uh, of that piece of um, liturgy, that, that scripture, the central story is freedom and liberation and uh, uh, really freedom from slavery. And I think to myself that that makes most sense to me 
if I think to myself the slavery that I find myself in when I am held captive by any obsession, an obsessive fear, an obsessive worry, an obsessive anger. Um, My friend Carol quoted the Buddha the other night in a talk that she gave. The Buddha went to uh, visit uh, the community of monks at Kosambi, and uh, the monks in Kasambi had started to fight amongst themselves, apparently. Two major chief monks had started to fight amongst themselves about some apparently minor point uh, in, in the Vinaya, in the, in the rules about the interpretation of... By the way, are you too warm? Abaya, is it warm in here? I can't tell if it's warm or cold. I can't see Can people... Is anybody cold? No, I mean, I, air, not so much. I have enough air. It's just very hot. <laughs> well, not that much. <laughs> Too many sweaters on. That's okay. Don't change the temperature for me, Abaya. I'm okay. Oh, I was going to give you this, but you're hot. I'm hot. <laughs> no, 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 no. I don't need that. No, 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 here we are, back. (laughs) See, now for all posterity on the tape, we have checked the temperature of the room and of me. (laughs) So he came to Kasambi, and here are these monks fighting on this minor point. And he tries, actually it's a very interesting, it's a very interesting sermon. I hadn't hadn't remembered it in a long time um, until Carol read it the other night, where usually the stories are that the Buddha comes along, meets someone, in some degree of confusion, gives a teaching, the confusion lifts, and the, you know, the problem is solved. He teaches to the monks of Kasambi in vain. He teaches and teaches, and they keep on fighting, and they tell him, look, forget about it, go away, we're just involved now. <laughs> it's very touching, you know, imagine the Buddha shows up and says, listen, don't do this, and they say, just we don't want to hear from you. We're fighting over the Vinaya, right, which is one of the rules that you put down, but we don't want you in a fight, you just leave. <laughs> And we'll carry on. Um, And he says this great line. He says, Oh, monks, what obsession is it that has so filled your mind that you cannot see clearly? I like to change that to myself because I think it means the same thing. Oh, monks or oh, people, what obsession has so filled your mind that you cannot love fully? I know when anything has filled my mind, I have to get it. Maybe I have an idea. I must get this. This is what I need to have. This new thing, this new this, this new that. This plan that I have has to happen. Or I, something comes up in my mind that's a, a memory of a betrayal or something that's going on, either in my personal family or in my political world. If I get mad at the world or the government for what they're doing, It doesn't do me any good, actually, that the presence of the mad, um, the presence of the mad means that I am not present to the possibility of compassionate response. I'm being held captive by the mad, and I'm sort of obsessing on the mad, and in some ways, if I'm careful, if I really look carefully, plotting a revenge, because it's hard to be mad without plotting some ever-so-subtle way of getting even, which isn't going to happen if, as soon as the mad stops. The, the situation does not change, 
But instead of plotting revenge, what usually comes up in me is something I could do that might be helpful, like get out the vote or send money to some organization that I support, something. So there he is, and he, and he teaches the monks at Kasambi, and they don't listen. So it's very touching. But he did actually teach. Uh, and I, I wanted to talk about two particular um, different sets of teachings that have to do continually being um, challenged. This isn't going right, that isn't going right, the other isn't going right. Or challenged by losing people or things that we love. This is broken. This person doesn't love me anymore. I used to love them, but I don't love them anymore. That all the challenges of loss. Second noble truth is that uh, loss is loss, and it's inherent in the fabric of uh, incarnation. Once we've taken form, this form is here, it keeps on changing and changing and changing and ultimately changes out of form. And all the while, the last stage is being lost and the new stage is moving in. That is not problematic. Change is fundamental to being alive. What's problematic is insisting that change not happen, insisting that it be a certain way and that it stay that way. Um, I was talking this morning at breakfast at how much this is a culture that um, so reveres um, youth and... um, the beauty that the particular beauty of youth, um, the vigor of youth, and the beauty of youth, and uh, how much that makes difficulties for people who are not any more youthful, really wanting to be what we aren't anymore, uh, wanting to have what we don't have anymore. We want to have what we don't have anymore that we love. It's not about not being sad at losses. It's about, in some way, integrating the sadness so that we're able to say, well, I don't have this. I did want that. This is the nature of what human beings have to do as an enterprise. Each of us has to get used to it. We're doing the same job, all of us, at different ages I was talking to a friend of mine recently who uh, just had her birthday, and she's four months older than I am. We're talking about one or another thing that we don't do as well as we used to do. And I said, uh, did you see that uh, greeting card, Getting Old is Not for Sissies? She said, I did. She said, the truth is uh, that no age is for sissies, that it's uh, hard in the beginning, and it's hard in the middle, and it's hard in the end. The whole thing is a hard enterprise. And when you think about it, people say, oh, I would never be an adolescent again. Ah, that was the worst. Mm-hmm. But, you know, for different people, that was the worst. Other things were the worst. People have, oh, that 10 years, that was the worst. Now I'm first good. But it's just really hard. Second noble truth, to insist. The insatiable need in the mind that things be different. The third noble truth is that they could be different. We could stop insisting that things be different. We could, they, we, we could choose peace. Um, we could choose peace, which means, which does not mean that change won't happen, difficulty won't happen, sadness and loss won't happen, they will happen, but that we could condition our hearts and minds to such wisdom, not to like that, but to be able to say, that's okay, that's what happens. Even to say I'm in terrible pain about what happened, 
but it'll probably change the degree of my pain. I can wait it out. Everybody has pain. This is a shared pain of being a human being. What can I do for the person next to me? The best thing that can happen to me if I begin to mope in my own story is to have someone, one of my friends call and say, I need help. Don't you notice that? Because as soon as I'm helping somebody else, <coughs> first of all, I feel useful, and so, which makes me feel good. But also, it takes my attention out of the mope of my own story. Because I'm mostly held captive by my own story. Because the story is usually not just what's happening. It's an editorial opinion on what's happening. It shouldn't be happening. I could change it so it's not happening. Other people it doesn't happen to. Whatever it is. But it's an editorial opinion on what's happening for the most part. And the fourth noble truth are the training, is the training program that the Buddha set out to achieve the kind of heart and mind that sees clearly and doesn't get stuck, that chooses peace when it, when it can. The training program has three categories in it. It has a category of wisdom, the category of action in the world virtue category, and the category of mind training. Altogether, the eight pieces are wise understanding, wise intention, or aspiration, sometimes it's called, Wise action, wise speech, wise livelihood, wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration. And the first two, wise uh, understanding and wise aspiration, have to do with uh, getting it. That there's a really a problem about... It's a problem about being alive. Was, actually, when you think about... Um, I, I don't know. Most people, I think, think it's an adolescent thing. Did you sit around in college dormitories talking about the meaning of life? Uh, as if you figure it out in a college dormitory. You know, but I think maybe that's the first time that it occurs to people to think about it. Uh-oh, because they're out from their family. All of a sudden you see, ah, oh, I have to make my way in the world. Not easy. And what about... Um, the story of the Buddha with his realization as a young adult of the truth of old age, sickness, and death, I think is paradigmatic of all of us. At some point in life we realize, uh-oh, there is a little problem here having taken birth. And uh, <laughs> what will I do? And you know, if you want to give it a fancy name, you call it existential angst. Uh, but really, it's the dilemma of being in a body and a life. Uh, and uh, Sometimes I meet people who that it seems like it never occurred to them that that's a problem. <laughs> and I'm a little wistful when I do, because I think, how did they get away with it, you know? The whole lifetime, they just sort of cruise by that problem, you know, that, where it seems to me so clear, standing in front of me. So, anybody, everybody here, it occurred to them that it's a difficulty? That's wise understanding. I think wise understanding also includes an understanding of the fact that there is a dilemma, but some notion of what the Buddha understood in his own awakening, that there's a response to that dilemma. Not just that there's a dilemma, but that there is a redemptive response. That's a really important part, because otherwise there would be the next path part, which is right aspiration or wise aspiration, wouldn't happen. Yet they have to have some sense. There is a difficulty, but there's a response to that difficulty, not a solution to the difficulty, but a response to it. The response is compassion. 
response is wisdom and compassion. And the rest of the path part really is set, path parts are both directed to cultivating wisdom and compassion, I think through two different ways. The next path part, well, let's do the wisdom part. Let's go down to the last three path parts, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. Traditionally, those are thought of as meditative practices. I actually think they're whole life practices. But right effort is the effort to notice the presence in the mind of wholesome mind states and to cultivate them. It's the effort to notice the... uh, Notice in the mind the uh, presence of wholesome mind states and to maintain them. Notice in the mind the absence of wholesome mind states and cultivate them. Notice in the mind the presence of unskillful mind states and put them out of the mind. Notice in the mind the non-presence of unskillful mind states and keep them out of there. So there's really four parts, really making sure that what isn't wholesome stays out, making sure that what is wholesome gets in and gets cultivated. So sometimes right effort is is not so flashy. It's not quite so, um, not so much spoken about as right mindfulness and right concentration. It sounds like just try hard, but it isn't try hard. It's try hard in those specific ways. Notice, here comes a little um, oh, enmity in my mind creeping in from somewhere. You know, what so-and-so did about me and said about me. Da, da, da. And it's coming in out of left field, and I see it coming. And I, and I could, it's very seductive to say, especially if you're right, you know. Indignation. <laughs> indignation is a tremendous like, force behind it. makes you feel very vital can't believe that and I could call a few people and tell them about it and then you see the mind just leap up to do a little dance with that indignant thought and carry on with it and it's a hard thing to say to myself so that you don't want to go there you just don't want to go there just do something else if I push this button in my car tape deck it will play Mozart that is a way better thing for me to do. I actually have that in there all the time. I'm never one more than a finger push away from Mozart, which is the last ditch. You know, maybe I could do meta, maybe I could do this, maybe I could do that. If all else fails, Mozart. Because I don't, if I catch it in time, because I don't want to go there. Uh, because it's, a, it's like, do I want to take this poison now and infect myself, or do I want to keep my mind in a good shape? And the best part of my wisdom self knows I want to stay here. And the part of me that's seducible says, don't you want to do one dance? Who will know? I will know if I do it. And it will be hard to stop dancing once I start. That's exactly the way it works. Because then they become an obsession in the mind. I was going to bring, uh, I'm not going to get past this first noble truth. <laughs> this first path part. I was going to bring a, uh, an article from uh, the newspaper recently by Dave Barry, uh, of, uh, do you see the article about the leaf blowing? Somebody went out in his backyard, front yard, with a leaf blower, uh, which I have bad feelings about anyway. They use up so much energy and they just make a lot of noise. And what do they do with the leaves anyway? Just blow them somewhere else. You could rake them if you wanted. You could use them in a compost. I mean, a lot of things you could do that didn't annoy the neighbors. But anyway, this 
particular man went out with a leaf blower and blew his leaves, and he blew them onto his neighbor's lawn. So then the neighbor came out with his leaf blower and blew them back. This is a serious story. It was in the... Dave Barry picked it up off the off the news wires and then made a whole story about it. Apparently, they blew back and forth in <laughs> escalating levels of blowing fury until they were having an all-out war over it. And they made the newspapers. They had to call the sheriff over these guys blowing the leaves on each other. And you can see that the mind gets so intrigued, spoiling for a fight, that it'll do anything. I blow... I mean... You think to yourself, did you want to do that? And, who, but, and you know, it's funny if it's leaf blowers, but it's not funny if it's countries shooting each other, you know. That, um, but the mind is so seducible. I'm right. And don't tell me what I can do. Why not? You know, that, it's a, just... It's path part of right effort... Um, Right mindfulness. Sometimes people think we're practicing mindfulness here, and sometimes when we have more instructions about the meditation, talk more about naming precisely what's happening moment to moment. My breath, breath is coming in, the breath is going out. Belly moving out, belly moving in, thoughts going through, thoughts coming back, not a lot of thoughts. Whoa, all of a sudden rush of thoughts, anger arises. You know... The difference between mindfulness, which is the balanced recognition of what's going on, non-reactive, and naming what's going on. Naming is naming. You know, it's, it's, it's actually it's a good thing to do because it keeps a certain kind of catalog going. It at least tidies up the mind. There's a really wonderful Buddhist commentator, Nyanapanaka, who just died in recent years, who said... Um, Naming has the effect of tidying up the mind. He says it's a good thing to do. He said if you go in your living room and it's all thrown apart and you know, there's no housekeeping, he said it's not comfortable to sit there. If you tidy it up, then you feel at ease when you sit down. So the same. He said tidy the mind, you feel at ease. But that doesn't necessarily mean that any degree of composure in the mind, any degree of open-heartedness about it. Just means you can see what's there. Sometimes I can see what's there, I don't like it, and I'm mad at it. If I can see what's there and not be mad at it, and even not like it and not be mad at it, which is really the trick, and not like it and not be mad at it, say that's what's there. Hmm. I have to do a lot of tidying here, a lot of changing. Maybe I have to change all the furniture. Maybe I have to do something else, but. Right mindfulness is the non-reactive understanding of what's present in the mind so that some clear comprehension arises about what to do next. Wise concentration, which is the last path part, is really what it sounds like. It's enough steadiness in the mind, enough composure to hold the mind in a non-reactive place so that I can know this is not what I wanted. This is not what I like. This is frightening to me. And I don't have to be hysterical about it. Matter of fact, I can be pretty balanced about it and see what else I can do. Everything really hangs on that right concentration. It's tremendously important. We talk a lot about teaching mindfulness and metta here. But the truth is, I think we are teaching concentration here, out of which 
mindfulness and metta grow. And we are teaching concentration in a variety of ways. One of the ways that we are teaching it, I think, is through teaching the Dharma and teaching uh, ideas and values of uh, moral or virtuous or non-upsetting, non-harming behavior because they don't harm other people, they don't harm us and they don't upset our minds. It's not that the, I, I see this as all quite interrelated. But those three, last three path parts, right effort, right, concent- right mindfulness, right concentration, are traditionally linked together and called, okay, these are the, they're called um, um, uh, mind development, um, the mind development parts of the path. Um, because they were traditionally understood to happen internally to oneself. And then the three middle parts of the, and lead to wisdom, which leads to compassion. And you see what's going on in the world. Your heart gets broken. And you also, when you see that when my heart is broken open and I respond with love, regardless of what happens, I am saved from tribulation then that's the wisdom that manifests itself in compassion. The three middle parts of the path, right action, right speech, right livelihood, uh, don't sound like mental development. They actually sound like things you do in the world. Right action has to do with living, uh, living out the precepts of uh, moral behavior. People who um, come on retreat and people who come here on the second Wednesday of uh, every month at 7 o'clock in the morning, recite together the five uh, precepts of, uh, of a lay person. I actually, it's a, actually traditionally of a Buddhist lay person, but I think they're the five precepts by which any moral person could live a life. I undertake the precept to refrain from harming living beings, to refrain from taking that which is not freely given to refrain from expressing my sexuality in a way that is exploitive or abusive, to refrain from uh, using speaking in a way that's exploitive or abusive, to keep my mind from being confused so I won't be exploitive or abusive. They're really all one precept, permutations of the same precept. I undertake the precept to remain harmless, to not be exploitive or abusive, and I'll need in order to do that to keep my mind alert. So those are, uh, and they, and because they are uh, in the form of action in the world, speech in the world, which is a particular form of action, it's interesting to speculate about why there's a different category for right speech. There are different kinds of actions in the world. Uh, I think because, first of all, because speech makes such is such a potent action, and we speak all the time and cause a great deal of pain with what we say, then I think often, I think if if I said to you, can you think of something in your whole life that you wish you hadn't said? (laughs) Could you think of three situations in which you'd like to take back something? Could you? uh, Could you? One, not even three. But they write themselves in indelibly in the mind. Hmm. 
Do you remember the, the line from Omar Khayyam in the, in the Rubaiyat? Do you remember that? The moving finger writes, and having writ moves on, nor all your piety nor wit can lure it back to cancel half a line, nor all your tears wash out a word of it. I remember reading that as an adolescent and being very moved by it. It's the kind of thing that adolescents get moved about, I think. <laughs> but maybe old people also, because here I am, 50 years later remembering it, <laughs> made a big impression. Right speech. Um, right livelihood. Because everybody has to go out and do something in the world to keep themselves going. And it's so hard to not be exploitive and to do it honestly. And I have very much the sense that if a person were to take on those path parts as their practice, and said, you know, I'm not a meditator. I can't meditate. Um, I don't have the perspective of paying attention to my mind and the mind moments. But you know, I'm in the world. I'm going to be scrupulous in my business dealings. I'm going to be scrupulous in my speech. I'm going to be scrupulous in all my actions. First of all, I think you would have to pay tremendous attention to your mind and heart every second, because otherwise how would you know you were unscrupulous? That I need to watch uh, for myself just about what I'm about to speak, for instance. Why am I going to do this? Why am I saying this? Am I showing off? Is this helpful? Is this just uh, is this conveying um, the essence of what I want to say? Am I doing this to do um, extra drama? Is this uh, just a, is this a skillful teaching means or is this uh, extra? Does this serve? You know, you really have to, I, I find for myself that it wouldn't be possible to say I'm seriously doing right livelihood or right speech or right action unless I was actually paying attention to the movements of my heart all the time. I think it's tax season now, and uh, I don't know how many times people... I, I don't do my own taxes. Someone does it, but, you know, I, I think about the ways that I hear that people think about, is it, you know, how do I declare this or not declare this? All ways of thinking, complicated. Not to say I know the answer to any of them, but to watch the movement of the mind into self-servingness at any time and saying, is this, what am I doing here? Will I feel good later? Uh, there's a line in the Metta Sutta that I love. It says, uh, this is what should be done by those who are skilled in goodness and who know the path of peace. And then it begins to, it says a number of things that they should do, straightforward, gentle in speech. And then it says, doing not the slightest thing of which the wise would later reprove. I think that's a great line, doing not the slightest thing of which the wise would later reprove. Then someone said, well, you know, first of all, who are the wise? But I think the wise is my own heart, because if I do the slightest thing of which my heart would later reprove, it comes back to tell me about it afterwards. It catches me up. It's called moral inventory, <laughs> spontaneous moral inventory. And it keeps a list for years. I mean, it doesn't finish that list. It, it, it writes it in, and then sometime I'll be sitting on retreat or sitting quietly at some point. And it occurs to me, that thing that you said, that wasn't good. You weren't thinking. 
So those three path parts of right action, right speech, and right livelihood uh, move towards, I have the understanding about them that if I took them on as a practice and I said to myself, never mind about the mind training, I'm not a contemplative, I'm not going to do that, I live in the world, I'm going to do this. I would be training the heart all the time to compassionate awareness of the effect of my actions in the world. Is what I'm about to say is the way I'm earning my living is what I am doing now for the benefit of other people. If I had that as a shaper of my actions all the time, uh, I think I cannot be doing anything other than uh, cultivating compassion. I'd have to be having in my mind as the filter, what's the effect of this on other people? And I would have such a first-hand view, I think, of the cause and the um, uh, causes of suffering and what alleviates suffering, which would lead me to increased wisdom about the causes and end of suffering. So if you think about that, actually until this morning, I didn't quite get that as well as I just did. I hope you got that as well as I just did. I'd never got it quite that well. So often uh, my, my early understandings of that were you get a little bit of understanding you behave ethically so that your mind and your heart will be at ease so that you'll be able to really do the contemplative practice and see clearly. And that will lead to wisdom, which leads to compassion. I really did understand that the practice of compassion through the practice of the paramitas leads to wisdom. I get that. This morning I actually got it that those three path parts by themselves, I I obviously understood that before, I never got it quite so well. That's good. I feel good about that. I like it when I really feel like I taught myself something. <laughs> Did you get it in a new way or am I imagining? Was that different this morning, Lynn? <laughs> well, it's always new. <laughs> okay, there you go. Let me tell you about uh, the list of the uh, paramitas. Because it's a whole other list and it's a whole other story. The list of the Eightfold Path is the Eightfold Path is the fourth noble truth. It's part of the teaching of the setting into motion, the turning of the wheel, which was the first sermon that the Buddha preached after his enlightenment. Okay, we put that aside. Whole other piece of Buddhist lore is the are the legends of the Buddha in. Um, previous lifetimes, preparing himself for this life in which he is going to be fully liberated into complete understanding. And that part, and it makes the point that, that the preparation for this being the lifetime in which all fetters to full seeing fall away were his development of a perfectly good heart. So I think it's, it's actually interesting to think that he needed a perfectly good heart in order to be liberated into a perfectly good heart. But I think that he that I'm beginning to understand that enlightenment experience as the test of his perfectly good heart that he passed. And that it, the, the gift of the passing that test was the new awareness, which it doesn't say he had before, of uh, a deep understanding of karma and seeing of all his past lifetimes and the deepest understanding of the causes and the end of suffering. 
But the legend of the Paramitas is, uh, goes like this. Uh, the Buddha in previous lifetimes was an animal, different animals, and always animals with extraordinary um, moral development. So these are st- the, those stories of the Buddha in previous lifetimes as an animal are the Jataka tales, and people read them or tell them to their children and have for really for millennia. All of them making the point of uh, how one or another quality of the heart needed to be perfected before the Buddha was completely ready to have his revelation of the end of suffering. There were ten in the Theravada um, in the Theravada tradition, there are ten others in other Buddhist traditions, other numbers, six in Tibetan tradition. In the Theravada tradition, the ten are generosity, morality, renunciation, wisdom, patience, energy, truthfulness, determination, loving kindness, and equanimity. And uh, there's a way to understand them as independent different uh, uh, qualities of heart, when I just said them to you, you recognize them as being different things. Truthfulness is not the same exactly as determination. It's not the same as loving kindness. But there's a way also, at least I see this very clearly. I've been thinking about it a lot for a couple of years. But I see very clearly that they're actually all permutations of each other, that you can find one or another embedded in the other. They're a, they're a hologram that each one of them is um, the, that all the ten parameters are maybe the hologram of a perfect heart, and you can look around and around and see through the lens of generosity. Suppose I look through the lens of generosity and think, oh, okay, generosity is you give a gift, the free giving of gifts. But if I am very moral, then I give the people around me the gift of safety. They feel good around me. If I am uh, a renunciate and able to renounce. Uh, unskillful behavior traits, then I uh, give myself the gift, at least, of a tame lust system. I don't have to be afraid of uh, doing something that would be impulsive to gratify some lust that wouldn't be good for me or anybody else. It's a great relief not to be pushed around by my impulse system. If uh, I am truthful, I'm giving the people that I'm talking to the gift of a level playing field because they have the same information that I do. There's a way to see all of those other paramitas as reflections of generosity. If I started through any of the other ones, um, if I started through the lens of wisdom, let's say that generosity is the only possible way to behave. It's a very wise way to behave. If I'm generous, I'm uh, in the act of generosity, practicing non-clinging. And if suffering is clinging, in the very act of generosity, I'm liberating myself. It's also a, a wisdom, it's, it's very wise to be generous if I, if I understand that um, the sense that I need something is the cause of suffering, is suffering. Um, been thinking about uh, the fact that uh, most of us who grow, grew up in a Western religious tradition know Psalm 23. And um, I think about the line, 
The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And I think about not wanting. And I think about being a way of meaning. I've finished with that insatiable want. It doesn't mean that I don't want things. I very much want a world at peace. I want a world with more equitable sharing of supplies. I want my children to be happy. You know, I want there to be the end of homelessness and we're in there. are a lot of things that I want. I think it means I, I won't be held hostage by uh, my wish that things be other. I can wish and work for them, but I won't have the suffering of wanting. I think that's what it means. So I think you can see through the lens of each of... Um, through each of those paramitas, each of those uh, perfections of the heart, all of the others. But, I th- but what clearly is the point of the paramita teaching and the reason people tell those stories to their children, the reason I'll read you one of those stories now, is the idea that you can, uh, it, it would be possible for a person to take on paramita practice as well as, or in addition to, as another meditative practice, as another route to coming to wisdom, that behaving through the path of compassion, I dedicate myself to the well-being of other people. What we learn is that that dedication makes us happy. We can do the wisdom route, which tells us about suffering and reflects as compassion. We can do the compassion route, which puts us in connection with the whole world of beings, which manifests as wisdom. Not, you know, I don't see them as different. This is a story of... Uh, the monkey who would not give up. The Buddha, in a prior incarnation as the chief of a band of monkeys, steadfastly protected his tribe from being discovered and harmed by the people who lived downstream on the Ganges from the huge and wonderful mango tree in which the monkeys lived. One day, a mango fell off the tree and was carried by the river to the bathing site of King Brahmadatta, who, enchanted by the taste of the fruit, traveled with a search party and found the tree. The monkeys overheard the men planning to kill them and eat their meat as well as the mangoes. They were terrified. It's wonderful this story. Doesn't, aren't you upset now? I, I get all upset about even reading this to you, a tree full of terrified monkeys. The chief of the monkeys determined to save them. So you get it that he is the Buddha in a prior... And, Chief of the monkeys, determined to save them, tied a reed to his foot, leapt across the river, and barely managed to grasp a branch on the other side. Run across the reed, he called, and over my back. 80,000 monkeys ran to safety. (laughs) A lot of monkeys in that trailer. 80,000 monkeys ran to safety. But don't you feel good? 80,000 monkeys ran to safety? The monkey chief's back was broken. King Brahmadatta held him as he died and asked who he was. The monkey said, I am their king, and I love them. I do not suffer since by my death my subjects are free. Remember, it is not your sword that makes you king. It is love alone. Thereafter, Brahmadatta ruled with love, and his people were happy ever after. It's actually a good story for the beginning of this Lenten season. About the, the possibility to do out of love on behalf of all beings. 
Think about the Bodhisattva vow, although beings are numbers, numberless. I vow to uh, end their suffering. So that's that list. Generosity, morality, renunciation, wisdom, patience, energy, truthfulness, determination, loving kindness, equanimity. Just thinking about the various habits that those trainings call for. The habit that generosity calls for the habit of sharing. Determination calls for the habit of steadfastness, resoluteness. Thinking of renunciation calling uh, particularly as uh, requiring the habit of restraint restraint uh, restraint is a it's almost becoming a quaint word you know um, actually it was my friend Joseph Goldstein who said it sounds Victorian these days to talk about restraint mm-hmm. um, I think about names that that uh, women used to have like prudence <laughs> nobody calls that child prudence anymore <laughs> But it's a great name, or chastity. Uh, hmm? Thankful. I know a thankful. You know someone whose name is thankful. Yeah. I know a charity, but she's very old. <laughs> I know an honor um, who will be four next week. Uh, um, but um, uh, felicity, patience. Patience. People had names like patience, patience, and prudence. Um, so here we are in an age where um, restraint is not so much the zeitgeist. Um, but I was thinking about how restraint is the peace that mindfulness allows for. That in between. Uh, the emerging of a feeling, I feel like doing this, and the doing of it, that the practice of mindfulness puts a little bit of a gap so that it's possible to reflect, is this going to benefit me and other people or not? There's a very important teaching, maybe this is the last thing I'll tell about, very important teaching. The Buddha, when he left home, uh, part of the leaving home story, which is uh, touching, is he not only left a, wi- a young wife, but he left a young son. So it's always nice to tell the story that when his wife, when his son grew up, it, both his wife and his son uh, ordained and uh, became monk and nun. And he uh, did a very famous teaching to his son Rahula. And uh, the teaching goes like this. He said, before doing, anything, before doing anything, Rahula, think to yourself, is what I'm about to do for the benefit of myself and for others? And in the middle of doing something, think to yourself, is what I am currently doing for the benefit of myself and others? And in the end, after you've done something, think to yourself, was what I just did for the benefit of myself and others? And if it will be, or is, or was, fine. And if it isn't, 
don't do it, or stop doing it, or make amends for having done it. When you think about that, that living a life with just enough space in there to be able to reflect so that we, um, we act from the highest clarity about what will make more suffering in the world or not. I think the extraordinary thing, the, the, it's a fundamental uh, Buddhist image to think about uh, the fortune of uh, a human incarnation. The Buddhist cosmology has uh, realms of beings and woeful realms and then animal realms and uh, human realms and then angelic realms and heavenly realms. And um, the human realm is held to be the most um, desirable realm to get born into because there's room for the cultivation of the heart. Notion, if you think about, well, an angelic realm sounds good, all those angels floating around and not any problems because everything is fine. I don't know any particular... uh, I don't know any particular citations for how it actually is in those angelic realms, but what you hear about them is in the angelic realms, with nothing to challenge the heart, there's no room for the purification of the heart or for growth. That in this human realm, the possibility that we have is for the purification of the heart. That we have, uh, different from other species of animal, the possibility of feeling like doing something and deciding not to. That restraint is a particularly human capability. We can say to ourselves, I feel like doing that. But that would not be such a good thing for myself or for other people. So I won't do it. And it's a, it, uh, maybe a good word for it is we have the, we have the, we have the possibility of nobility. You know, that we can really do noble things. We can choose for the higher good. We can say, I feel like requires actually the dedication of the heart to say, I'm not going to live out of the I feel like place. And it also, I think, is helped very much by the wisdom that the I who feels like really is a myth that we make up, really is a, a myth that we've cultivated. Maybe that's an odd place to end, but um, I learned this from Carol the other day. It comes from Shanti Deva, who's a 6th century Buddhist commentator. It says, since all fear and stress are consequences of the commitment to the me fantasy, can I afford to entertain this deadly fantasy for even a moment? <laughs> I thought, oh, that's pretty good. So let's sit for a minute.
and make the dedication of merit this way. In gratitude for the ability to come together and uh, sit together, practice together, join together in the aspiration of our hearts for liberation on behalf of ourselves and on behalf of all beings everywhere, we dedicate the merit of this practice to the well-being of all beings everywhere. May all beings on all realms and may all beings on this earthly realm so much in need of liberation come to the end of suffering speedily and in our time. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on February 25, 2004. It is an offering of the dark. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.